We are hurting, we are grieving, and I think I speak for all of us when I say our hearts are in pain as to what unfolds in Gaza as we speak. Currently, there are more than 8,000 civilians that have been killed in this relentless and brutal attack, half of whom are children. We bring to you this exclusive podcast with two of our own local Sydney imams who have been at the forefront of the Palestinian cause, Sheikh Wissam Cherkawi and Sheikh Ahmed Abdo, who I believe is also from Palestinian descent. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Mashaykh, as we speak currently on this morning, we had the Al Jabalia refugee camp bombed with over six tons of explosives. Reports are coming out saying at least 100, but this is only expected to rise. We've had the Al Ahli Baptist Hospital bombed. We've had the oldest church in Gaza bombed. And as we speak, the death toll is sitting at 8,000 civilians that have been killed, as I mentioned, half of whom are children. And it unfortunately begs the question, which happens to be the most important question in light of all of this, do you condemn Hamas? If we look to 23 years ago and the call to continuously condemn atrocities that are happening Mm -hmm. in the name of Arabs or in the name of Muslims, Mm -hmm. the question that begs to be asked is, is condemnation and its continued succession going to bring about a restoration of justice before we take any steps or actions we need to ask ourselves what is the intention and what is the desired outcome the desired outcome in october in november in the year 2023 after three weeks of continuous raids assaults onslaughts and massacres is an end to the injustice and to the senseless killings and when we ask palestinians themselves the 2.3 million people within the concentration camp of gaza they say the way to bring about restoration of justice is to end the occupation it's very important to contextualize what is taking place and it's unfortunate that we're seeing the question that many journalists and mainstream media outlets cannot run away from is do you condemn Hamas, completely ignoring the context of the situation, con- the, ignoring the context of the 75-year occupation. And Jazakallah khairan, Sheikh Ahmed, for that beautiful response. Might, might I just add to that? And that's, that's exactly right. And I agree with Sheikh Ahmed. And th- there's another side of this condemnation or this do you condemn question. When you ask somebody, do you condemn? What are we actually talking about? Are we talking about the loss of innocent life? Anyway, whoever it may be, whoever the perpetrator is, any loss of life, Islam has a clear foundation for that and has a clear principle on that. Mm. One life is like saving humanity. If it's saved, then taking one life is like you've taken away the life of humanity and the life of all lives. There's no question. That's not even a question. But when you say to somebody, do you condemn? and you're only asking them to condemn what's happened, you're sort of denying that person. In fact, you are denying that person uh, their own trauma. You're denying that person what they've been through. So for example, you say, do you condemn what happened on the 7th of October? But wait a second, there's 75 years of occupation as well. Has anybody condemned the thousands of innocent babies and lives and men, women, children that have been lost? Mm -hmm. Has anyone condemned that? Mm -hmm. When Amnesty International comes out and says war crimes have been 
have been have occurred. Uh, Israel and the Israeli forces have answers to have have, have things to answer to have have potential war crimes, crimes uh, international. Uh, they've con- contravened international law. Where is the condemnation of that? Where is the condemnation of raising buildings, wiping out generations, removing families whole, destroying buildings, neighborhoods? Where is the condemnation of all of this? So when you say to somebody, do you condemn what happened on the 7th of October? Nobody accepts the loss of innocent life. But when you ask that question, are you denying also what's happened? 75 years of occupation and 16 Mm. years. There are over 175 permanent checkpoints in Gaza. 175 permanent checkpoints. So you're asking this question, but you're denying a whole context, which is the wiping out of generations, the brutal domination of a people, mm-hmm. of an indigenous people to to, a, 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 to their own land. And so it doesn't give the real picture. And nobody, and we're still yet to see any condemnation for anything, the condemnation for killing of thousands of babies, the condemnation for, for destroying hospitals, the condemnation of breaching international law, the condemnation of the war crimes that the ICC is saying, you have questions to answer. Israeli mm-hmm. forces have questions to answer. Where is the condemnation? There's been utter silence. Yes. And it's unfortunate that we, are, that we are seeing an utter silence when it comes to the condemnation of Israeli war crimes, a condemnation of the fact that Israel is an apartheid state. Just yesterday, we had a media statement, a press release released by, I believe, many of the former Australian prime ministers once again, condemning Hamas, but completely silent when it comes to the war crimes, when it comes to the apartheid state of Israel. What are your thoughts on that? And what is your response to the Australian prime ministers who were signatory to that statement? Sheikh Hussam. Well, frankly, six Australian prime ministers signed the document and a statement and they called for unity, but it was not unifying. It was in fact very divisive. And it was very divisive because there was not a single condemnation of the thousands of lives that were lost, not a single condemnation, even not a single statement of reproach where you hold somebody accountable. And when you acknowledge the history of the Jewish people, and we and we absolutely say, yes, uh, there are past atrocities that have touched the Jewish, pe- mm. Jewish people, and the statement mentioned that. But you went into the history of what happened to the Jewish people but couldn't acknowledge 75 years of what Palestinian people have had to endure. Illegal according, according illegal, to international Illegal law. occupation, 16 years of blockade, brutal occupation. Mm-hmm. In fact, Amnesty International said it was the complete domination of a people, the complete domination of people where they had to be subject, and I quote, daily humiliation and fear. That what, yes. well, that's what Amnesty International yes. determined in a report that they had. So not a single acknowledgement of what's happened to the Palestinian people. You stood in that, you mentioned in that statement, we stand in solidarity with the Jewish people, but why don't you stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people? Mm-hmm. What's happened? Why don't you stand on the side of justice? Mm-hmm. You urged, you urged in this document for there to be preservation of innocent life. Who urges? Mm-hmm. Who urges for the for the saving of innocent life? Who urges? Don't you condemn the loss of innocent life? You urge? Mm-hmm. What do does you, urging do? Do you urge a rapist to stop committing his rape or do you stop him? Do you condemn him? Absolutely. Do you imprison him? You condemn an act. Mm-hmm. You don't just simply urge a perpetrator to say, I would rather you not do that. It's so passive. It's so wrong in, in, in its wording, in its context, in the way that it was structured. I'd actually be quite surprised to see if the prime ministers saw 
what was actually documented in that statement before they signed it. Yes. And we have information that it was written by the Zionist lobby and that the Prime Ministers signed the document. I know Malcolm Turnbull, the former Australian Prime Minister, who said he, he penned it, but it was so well reported. It was not unifying, yes. very divisive yes. to the community. And you know what it ignored? It ignored what Human Rights Watch have said, what the United Nations have said, and what Amnesty International ha have determined and made very, yes. very clear. Yes. Israel has questions to answer for war crimes and the breach of international law and for collective killing. None of that was mentioned in this document. Yes. You can't just stand in solidarity as if to endorse every word, every statement, and every act that it does. Mm -hmm. Because then, in effect, are then you saying, I endorse every bomb, every mm -hmm. bullet, every building? Every child that's every child. From are the you rubble? also yes. endorsing that? It's such a blanket statement that even in politics, a person in your own party you would never give a blanket statement for. But this is such a blanket statement that, for example, Israel has a right to defend itself, but without restraint, yes. without checks and balances. It's being used as a license to kill. It's a license. That means you endorse every act that they perpetrate, ignoring what these internationally recognized bodies, such as Amnesty International and the ICC, have and, clearly stated. And I would even go further to say that the Israeli Human Rights Center, um, Bet Salem, has in fact labeled Israel as an apartheid state. So this is not something which is biased. This is something, according to international law, they are guilty. And on that point of the six Australian prime ministers, props to uh, prime minister, the former prime minister, Paul Keating, for abstaining from signing that, that absolute disgrace of a, of a statement. When it comes to Gaza in particular, however, the people of Gaza are all too familiar with bloodshed, bombing, war they are all too familiar with israeli assault yet for many this particular assault in 2023 is different many are saying that it is uh has a strong resemblance to the nakba which occurred in 1948 sheikh ahmed if i can ask you what makes this assault different well, it makes it very different because this is the way that it's been described by Israeli government officials and ministers that, in fact, it is this new Nakba, this new catastrophe. Mm -hmm. And leaflets that have been dropped down by airplanes on towns within the West Bank are calling the West Bank, not the West Bank, not Adaf al Gharbiya, but Adaf al Yahudiya, but calling it the Jewish Bank and giving an ultimatum to local indigenous Palestinian populations within these old Palestinian villages on the West Bank, if you do not cross the border uh, past the Jordan, Jordan River into Jordan, then you'll be wiped out. For the people in Gaza, the 2.3 million of them, they are either those very people who in 1947-48 from other areas in Palestine were amongst the 750,000 forcibly displaced people, refugees within their own land and their own country that were forced into a little strip, a very small strip, the size of Gaza, in order to settle there in refugee camps. Now, there are people there that are still in buildings which are temporary, thinking that they are going to return back to their hometowns and houses, which they no longer have the right to return. 
they're also children and grandchildren of those very people that were forcibly displaced. When we look at forced uh, displacement, this in fact is an act of ethnic cleansing. If we look at what's happening in Gaza, when there are notices given to people living in the northern strip of Gaza to move to safe zones in the southern parts of Gaza, including Khan Yunis, and then when they are departing, fleeing with their clothing, with the little property that they have, given 24 hours to flee, those very safe routes are now being aerial bombed. Those very houses within the southern strip of Gaza are also being bombed. So this begs the question, where is the safe zone in Gaza? What is the intent of the occupying state in forcing these people within northern parts of Gaza to move south? We've only got one uh, 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 conclusion to make. And that is, the southern part of Gaza only has one opening between it and Egypt, that being the border at Rafah. Now, the border of Rafah, when you have people going in from the Gaza Strip into Rafah, into the Sinai Desert, these are now being forcibly displaced. So if there's no longer any housing or dwellings for you to remain in, in Gaza, you've only got one option, and that is to go to another zone within the uh, outside the Ghazan borders. So they're going to be moved on again after 75 years. So they're saying, we don't want to go through the same thing. We've already gone through it once, but this mm-hmm. is not only happening in Gaza. This is also happening in other areas of the occupied lands of Palestine, that people who have not been given permission by Israeli government to build permanent dwellings are given now 24 hours to vacate their very land. When when you ask them how long you've been living here, they say we've been living here for generations. And the ultimatum is given. If you do not leave within 24 hours, you and your family, you will be killed. And there's no Hamas in the West Bank. This is a, it's very shocking. And as we mentioned, it's quite symbolic and a, a reflection of the Nakba of 1948. And we do fear that the people of Gaza are being forcibly removed from their homes. And this is ethnic cleansing. Amidst the genocide, amidst the carnage, amidst all the bloodshed, I would have to say there is a small glimmer of hope. There is a small glimmer of light that seems to be emerging. And that is that, yes, the people of Gaza are all too familiar with bloodshed and war. Yet for the first time, we are seeing the narrative shift in favor of the Palestinians. I would say this is something which is unprecedented and something which is really clear right now just on this on this weekend alone we saw about 500,000 people populate the streets of London in Sydney we had 50,000 people protest in support of the Palestinians while Israel on the other hand is really struggling for any support do you sense a shift in the narrative look it's an excellent question and one thing i would say in response to that is Most people understand what is fair, reasonable, and just. Mm -hmm. And hence, you find that when there's a protest, you get 50,000, 100,000, 150,000. Because people, when they see the bloodshed Mm -hmm. and the loss of innocent life, that's not who they are. You can't watch that and not be affected. You can't watch that 
and not be almost traumatized by what you're seeing. And most people, they don't want to stay quiet. They want to talk. They want to voice their view. They want to say this is wrong. And we're seeing that more and more because they're seeing it on their screens. They're seeing it on their TVs. They're having discussions. It's in the newspapers. You can't deny what we're seeing. At the moment, we're at over 8,000 deaths. 8,000 deaths. That's That blood spillage is that, that's unbelievable. Over 8,000 deaths, and most of them are children. Most of them are children. Human beings don't accept this. It's unfortunate that we have a political narrative and that the politics hasn't shifted. But people, people are standing for what they know to be right. Mm-hmm. So we see this sentiment changing is because people know what is just. Yes. And they know what is wrong. And they want to stand for justice. People have heard and they learned in their textbooks when they were at school what a genocide is. They know what ethnic cleansing is. They know what a genocide is. They understand that. And yet they won't stand for it. Nobody will stand for it. There are even Jews for Palestine who won't stand for it. There are Jews who I've seen at all these protest rallies who will not stand for the brutality of what they're seeing. This is not only uh, a, a select people or a minority of people who are protesting. You have people who are Christian, Jewish, atheist. All people are coming together because they know that it's wrong. They understand that it's wrong. And who would stand for that? Who would stand for that? And so we're seeing this narrative shift because fundamentally there is good in people. There is good in people. And and it's so positive to see that being borne out into the into the front, right? Yes. But we want that to have a an embodiment where there's an actual consequence. Let's have an let's have an immediate ceasefire. An immediate ceasefire. Let's call to account also, not only a ceasefire but also to call to account for the lives that have been lost. Our voices need to echo their voices. And so I feel this sentiment changing because the people are seeing the injustice occurring and they won't stay silent. Thanks to social media, a lot of prominent Palestinian voices have risen. They are unapologetic. They are highly skilled. They are trained. They are powerful voices. And alhamdulillah, they are becoming more and more prominent. We are seeing their voice being heard. And thanks to social media, we are also seeing journalists on the ground. We had Mu'taz, a famous journalist who is getting millions of followers, millions of views. May Allah protect these people and use them for the furtherance of the Palestinian cause. Another glimmer of hope we're seeing is the Palestinian people themselves. We are seeing signs of resilience like no other. We are seeing signs of hope amidst the carnage, amidst the bloodshed. Sheikh Ahmed, if I could ask you, what is it that gives gives the people of Gaza Izza? What is it that gives the people of Gaza such honor? If we were to come to identify one particular reason, we wouldn't be able to. Mm-hmm. But the people of, a, of our past Islamic history term Gaza, Gaza to Hashim, it is the Gaza of Hashim. Hashim is the great-grandfather of our beloved Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. And this land of Gaza is his burial place. And so some of those blessings come back to those ancestors of our beloved Not only that, the great Imam al-Shafi'i, one of the founders of the four canonical madahib within Ahl-Sunnah wa Jama'ah, was born in the very city of Gaza. 
When we look at the Bilad of Sham, Palestine, Palestine is in and amongst the greater Levant, the greater Syria area. The blessings of the people of Palestine, of Jordan, of Lebanon and Syria come back to none other than our beloved Prophet Muhammad in his famous announcement where he identified two opposite areas of the Arabian Peninsula. And if we look to what is happening today in the world, in the Middle East, we find that the two focal points of conflict, destruction and strife and an intention by various powers in the world to destroy is in fact focused on these two various areas. The first, the Prophet wasallam says, Allahumma barik fi shamina. O Allah, bless our greater Syria area. And he also said, Allahumma barik fi Yemenina. O Allah, bless our Yemen. Where the Prophet wasallam was in Mecca and he was in Medina, to his right would have been Yemen and to his left would have been Sham, referring to those two physical directions. If we look to the people of Sham, the people of that blessed area, the Prophet Prophet's famous night journey occurred from Mecca to Masjid al-Aqsa, to that blessed mosque which is the farthest mosque. When one of the companions asked the Prophet tell us, O Messenger of God, which was the first house of worship established on earth? To worship Allah, to worship God. He says, Masjid al-Haram, the sacred precinct, meaning in Mecca. He says, and then what? He says, Masjid al-Aqsa. He says, how long was between their establishment? He said, 40 years. So therefore we know that from the time of the Prophet Adam salam's coming onto earth, we have a place of worship established in Mecca. And then in Masjid al-Aqsa, which is Palestine, and the land of Palestine, the great majority of prophets and messengers that were sent to God step foot in the land of Palestine. If we look at Masjid al-Aqsa, the blessing that comes to the area of Palestine, Allah Taala tells us in Surah Al-Isra, Subhan Allahi Asra Abdihi. Glory be to the one who took on a night journey his servant, min al-Masjid al-Haram, from the sacred precinct in Mecca ila al-Masjid al-Aqsa to the furthest mosque, al-Aqsa, alladhi. Where we have placed blessing around. Therefore, that blessing that comes down, comes down on Baytul Maqdis, on Jerusalem, on Masjid Al-Aqsa. And if we look at some of the terminology that the scholars use towards that city of Jerusalem, they call it Baytul Maqdis or Baytul Muqaddas or Quds. And this all stems from one of the 99 names of Allah, Al-Quddus. He is the holy, he is the pure. And if we want to look at how different faiths and religions can actually live side by side, we only need to look at the example of the old city of Jerusalem. We have Jewish quarters, we have Christian quarters, we have Muslim quarters, and we have Armenian quarters. In fact, for the Christian people, one of the most holiest sites on earth for them is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in the old city of Jerusalem. For Muslims, one of the most holiest of sites for them is Masjid al-Aqsa. There is no reason for Jews, Christians, and Muslims not to get along with one another. So if we come back to your question, yes. what is that blessing? What is that secret of Gaza? It is for it to be attributed to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He doesn't only say, uh, may Allah bless Sham. He says, our Sham, my Sham. So he attributes that land to him Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And so therefore the blood that is flowing within the veins of these people of Philistine is one where they have a direct connection to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And Allah could have chosen any other land for that destination to be for the night journey. 
but he chose the land of Palestine. And he could have chosen any other land for the, to be the place where that launch would happen. Nowadays, when NASA wants to launch its space rockets, it chooses a particular place on Earth in order to launch it, in order to get the, the, the best route into space. But Allah chose that that launch place would be above, over Masjid al-Aqsa itself. Although there is great focus right now on Gaza, we must not forget Masjid al-Aqsa because what happens in Gaza is connected to Masjid al-Aqsa. But not only that, but also Hebron or Khalid because that's the resting place of Sayyidina Ibrahim salam, the great patriarch of all the great three monotheistic faiths. So the entire land of Palestine is infused, is flooded with prophetic history. There is not a hand span on the area of 144,000 square meters within the old city of, or the, the Masjid al-Aqsa within the old city of Jerusalem, except that an angel has stepped or a prophet or a messenger of God has stepped, or a pious person has stepped. This is the barakah of that particular land. So that's why we're seeing the resilience of these people. And the Prophet ﷺ said that on the gates of Damascus and the, the gates of Jerusalem, there will continue to be a people who fight for their rights and the betrayal of those who betray them will not harm them in the least until the day of rising. SubhanAllah, what a what a package, what a what an absolute phenomenal package attributed to the people of Gaza, the people of honor. That is a beautiful sentiment you've captured. And I think you've also captured within your answer the reason why Palestine has been able to unify the Muslim the Muslims themselves far more than anything else. And let it be no secret, we care and we have tears and we have compassion for every Muslim suffering wherever they may be. But for the Palestinian people, for the Palestinian cause, we have sensed, we have seen a sense of unity like no other. Is that something you've also sensed, perhaps Sheikh Wissam? Absolutely. The Subhanallah, this has been and has felt very different, and it's a, a, the unfortunate and the, the tragedy that is unfolding. May Allah Subhanahu wa Taala be with our Muslim brothers and sisters. May Allah Subhanahu wa Taala make their plight easy. May Allah Subhanahu wa Taala forgive their dead and heal their wounded. And the Muslims and the Ummah is like a body, as the Prophet Muhammad said. It's like a body, a kalbunyan, like a building. And that if one part, in effect, one part is hurt, a whole part feels, the rest of the parts feel what one part feels. So it, one part doesn't feel, one part doesn't hurt without the rest part or the rest of the body hurting. So we're all one body, that's our identity. And the sham and Philistine is theology. And in the Quran, there's no less than six verses that have mentioned that area. So we understand what it means for a Muslim, for our identity, for who we are. And a loss of life, it affects all of us. And we can't say that there's a loss of life that doesn't affect us. And sometimes someone looks at, a Muslim from the outside and says, I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand. There's a situation that happened, but why, why is the entire, why are the entire Muslim community upset? But our identity is like one identity. It's yes. one, when the Prophet spoke about one body, it's like one identity. You can't do something or an event can't take place internationally that doesn't affect us. It affects us greatly. We grieve with them just like they would grieve with us. We hurt with them, just like they would hurt with us. If they shed tears, we shed tears. Yes. And their test at the moment is greater than anyone else. Yes, they're, they're on the inside. We can't 
and don't understand what they're quite going through. So their test is way more difficult than what everybody else yeah. is feeling. But it has unified the, the Muslim community. It has brought the Muslim community together. And it's done it in a way where we're feeling with each other, we're hurting with each other, we're seeing what's going on, and we can't stand idly by and allow these unjust or unjust actions to go on without something being done, something being said, or at the very minimum, the heart aches. Yes. And we're at a moment in time where we have to enact the hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu where if you see something wrong, if you see something that is unjust, yes. then you try and stop it. Yes, 100%. You're capable, you stop it. 100%. And we'll get back to the tools or the methods Muslims can use to stop this injustice taking the, place. The Muslims are incensed. Yes. The Muslims are incensed. They're outraged. Uh, they're, they're, they're completely perplexed As that the bloodshed yeah. is happening and we not feel and we not be yes. outraged. We're outraged. Definitely. We're incensed. Mm-hmm. And yet we continue to see that whilst the sentiment is changing, but there is still a strong political narrative. Why? Mm-hmm. Why have you allowed that to happen? Where is your courage? Yes. Where is your will? Where are your convictions? Where are those things that you yeah. advocate for? Why have you completely discarded these principles that you so much push on the people yes. that have put you in power Yet all these seem to be somewhat conveniently or flippantly lost and put aside. Sure. For what cause? For what purpose? Sure. And so, of course, the Muslims have united and they should unite. And that's the sign of a community that is still strong. It's the hope of a community. The community will always have that. And at the moment, they're exercising their God-given potential. And I want to bring, I just want to mention this point. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he was going to create human beings. And the angels, they said, فِيهَا You're going to create upon the earth people who will cause ruin and shed blood. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and they weren't asking yes. for any other reason, just to understand. They wanted mm-hmm. to understand. Mm-hmm. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he responds to them. How? He says, I know what you don't know. I know what you don't know. Yes. And, and there's an indication here of the human potentiality and what is to come. But not just human potentiality, but a connection with God. And I remember one scholar, he said about this, he said, when Ibrahim salam was in the fire and he was cast into that fire and it was an immense fire that people had to stay so far away from. When the angels came, when the angel, the malaika came to Ibrahim and they said to Ibrahim, do you need help? Do you need assistance? What did Ibrahim respond? He said, I don't need you. And then he said, Then ask Allah Azza wa Jal. And then here at this point, Ibrahim alayhi salam, he says, bihali yughnini an su'ali. I don't even have to ask. My, mm-hmm. His knowledge of me, يكفيني, it's enough. And it's almost like the question that was answered by the malaika at that very point where we were going to be created. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I know what you don't know. And then we see, we fast forward this time when Ibrahim's in the fire. It's like the answer was given. Look, look at these people who are going to rely on me and only seek from me. So the human potentiality coupled with the connection to Allah azza wa jal. And that's what we're seeing on display. Yes. People are coming back to that asal, who we are. They're coming back to that identity. Yes. This has been a somewhat of an awakening that Allah, he loves it when people come together they hurt together. They work together. 
They cry together. They they support each other. And this has been a realization of who we are as an ummah. Alhamdulillah. And it perhaps goes back to the verse, in al-usri yusra, that with every hardship comes an ease. And perhaps this is a manifestation of that ease emerging in this difficult time. And I just want to touch back. You've mentioned theology. And we are seeing theology play a major role in the resilience of the Palestinian people. I was at a protest on the weekend, and we'll come back to the legitimacy of protests uh, forward in this podcast. However, I was at a protest on the weekend and one woman, she didn't seem too religious, like she wasn't wearing a hijab or anything, yet she held up a poster that says, you cannot defeat a people that know that death is not the end. And we are seeing this theology of the Muslim, the theology that Islam gives us play a major role in giving the people of Gaza resilience. And we are seeing many videos emerge going viral of the resilience of the Palestinian people. A resilience that I would even argue is highly contagious, that even non-Muslims are being inspired. And if I may, I would like to read a caption from perhaps one of the biggest American activists, a non-Muslim online. He posted this yesterday and I would like to read it. His name is Sean King, one of the biggest American leading activists. He posts, I feel strange saying what I'm about to say, but in the midst of the most horrible things I've ever seen in my life, you've inspired me, meaning the Palestinians. Not since I was a teenage boy and went to Friday prayers at our local mosque many times have I thought about becoming a Muslim. But your faith has touched my soul. I've seen fathers holding the human scraps of their family in their hands, saying they still believe in Allah. How? And this received hundreds of thousands of likes with non-Muslims reiterating the exact same sentiment that they are inspired by the faith of the Muslim during this time to even come to Islam. We had another woman by the name of Megan B. Rice start to read the Quran. She inspired 5,000 others to also read the Quran after seeing what she saw from the Palestinian people. Sheikh Ahmed, if I may ask you, what is it within the theology of the Muslim that gives them so much hope amidst the genocide that is currently taking place? There's no prophet or messenger of God except that they have been granted the greatest of trials and tribulations within our tradition. And so if we look at the nearness of people to God, it's in accordance with their trials that they experience in their life. If we look at the 23 years of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and so blessings of Allah be upon him, his life after he had received prophethood and revelation, those initial 13 years in Mecca of persecution, of rejection, of alienation, of feelings of estrangement, of feeling as though he is left alone. When the power had been cut off by the people of Gaza and continues to be intermittently cut off as well, by the way, when food is limited in its coming in, where before the, uh, the, the hostile aggression of the Israeli occupying state upon Gaza, there were 500 trucks of food and supplies that enter. And then after the great advocacy of the Western world leaders, we had 20 trucks coming in not enough to to feed uh, a few families within one of the suburbs of Gaza when we look at the resilience of the prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him we take one moment one incident 
there was a time in which the city of Medina itself was under siege. Gaza is not the only city in our history that has been under siege, albeit a very long time, 16 years. This battle of Khandak, the battle of the trench, when the Prophet had drawn an area about two or so kilometers long in order to indicate where his companions would be involved in groups of ten during the coldest parts of the year, where they had no food nor water in order to consume, where they would be spending days and nights digging. The companions came to a rock, a boulder, that they were meant to dig. They couldn't strike it. And so they go back to the Prophet Muhammad in order to seek his counsel. They could have very easily diverted the line and gone around the rock. But this is a lesson for this ummah. That when our Prophet gives an instruction, you need to fulfill that instruction to the letter. So they didn't make any opinions or assumptions on their own. And so the Prophet came himself. He takes his pick and he goes down into the trench and he begins to strike. He strikes it three times. With every one of his strikes, he says, Bismillah, Allahu Akbar. In the name of God, Allah is greatest. This is a time in which the companions of the Prophet, the Muslims in Medina, are under siege. The enemy forces of the Arabs of Quraysh and the other affiliated tribes have gathered on the outskirts of Medina in order to come besiege and invade and they cannot even escape. They have no trade routes and no exits. He says, with each one of those strikes, the companions describe light that was uh, made apparent to them, which each one of his strikes. And with each one of them, he says, with this God or Allah has opened Yemen. With this God has opened Persia. With this God has opened the land of Syria. With each one of these, he referred to great empires in the world of that particular time where the Muslims didn't have the ability to even step outside of their city safely. But look at the visionary Prophet Muhammad. Look at the resilience of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu He gives glad tidings that this religion of Islam will reach to the Roman Empire to the Persian Empire, and to all other areas of the world. Not long after, the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, becomes not only a prophet and messenger where he already was, but he becomes the best statesman that this world has ever seen. And he begins to write in his letters to the emperors and the kings of the world. He writes to the emperor of Rome and he writes to the emperor of Persia, the two greatest superpowers of the world of the day. When he writes to the Persian emperor, he says to him, surrender, embrace Islam, submit to the will of God, and you will be safe. They were his words within his letter. Now, when that emperor received that letter and that communication, calling to safety, calling to peace, calling to harmony, we all know what he did with that letter. He took the letter in front of the messenger, he ripped it to pieces, and he threw it in the fire. When news came to the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, of the response of this superpower leader, to his letter, he says, he tore up this letter, may God tear up his empire. He was the last living Persian emperor. His own son comes and assassinates him and he becomes the last empire of Persia. And after that, that entire land falls under the rule of justice. When Sayyidina Rabbi ibn Amr, a companion of the Prophet wasallam, was called to the uh, assembly of Rustum, one of the great generals of Persia. 
And he asks him, what's your secret? He says, we are a people whom God has sent in order to take people away from the injustice of all the other ideologies to the justice of Islam. And that's what we're talking about here. Mm. To take them away from the constrictedness of this life to the expanse of this life and the next. And to take people away from the worship of deities other than God to the worship of the one true God. I guess it's a sense of optimism that the Prophet embodied and imparted onto the companions that even in the most difficult times there was a glimmer of hope and the, the Prophet sallallahu prophecy comes into fruition. Sheikh, uh, I just want to yes. add to that um, and, and fantastic, mashallah, very, very good. And, and adding to that, when you see people holding their babies or a, a mother yes. who's lost both her children and I, I do remember a video on that Many, multiple many, videos. And, and, and the father is saying, inna lillah wa inna ilahi raji'un, to Allah we belong and to Allah we shall return. Somebody watching that as an outsider might be perplexed as to why you would still articulate such a statement that to God we belong and to God we shall return. Sometimes doesn't quite really get how that person still clings to God, especially in a world where people are moving away from God, especially in a world where people are hurt by events that unfold in their life and they decide to remove God from their yeah, life. Question they, God. Yeah, and they question God. And then they see all of a sudden this great tragedy with loss of life and nothing could be greater. And then all of a sudden these people are still clinging to God. It's infectious because sometimes people forget who they are. And this is a really big issue with what's happening in our world today with all the isms that exist. People forget who they are. And when you see a statement to say, we belong to God, at the, one of the greatest tragedies that could unfold in your life, and somebody saying, to God we belong, it reminds you a little bit of who you are. You're not here to be purposeless. Yes. You were created for a reason. You belong to somebody. You're possessed by somebody. Someone mm-hmm. owns you. And that's a reminder. You're seeing this on display. And then you're, you're almost, in essence, reminded of who you are you didn't come to this world by yourself. You were brought into this world. You were created into this world. Someone made you. You mm. didn't just burst out of nothingness and are just here. And then you see these people carrying their own children and, and comforting their own wives to say that no, our, our child is, is in good hands with God, with Ibrahim, alayhi salam. God will take care of them. Or a man's lost his wife or a wife has lost her husband or entire generation wiped out but people stay, still say thank you Allah thank God mm-hmm. alhamdulillah we say alhamdulillah ala kulli shay, to all things mm-hmm. and all power is in his hands nothing happens without his decree nothing happens without his will that attachment is so strong it reminds you of who you are mm-hmm. it, it, and, and that's why it's infectious because it does something to the human you can't watch that and say why are they still articulating those words why are they still saying that because of that connection with Allah yes and it reminds us of who we are and so mm-hmm. It is infectious and it does have an impact. Mm. You can't see that without being impacted. It's absolutely beautiful. If, and <clears throat> if I can yes, add something, by all means. Uh, Sheikh Wissam, your words remind me of uh, <clears throat> one of the statements of, of, of one of my teachers, Habib Umar, Hafizullah, who says in Arabic a beautiful um, phrase. He says, Alhamdulillah, which I'll translate. Mm. He says, Alhamdulillahi ala kulli hal, maadin wa hal, murrin wa hal. So he repeats the word hal three times in the statement. Hal 
in the Arabic language, in this statement, has three differing meanings, although the same word is used. Praise be to Allah, to God, in every situation. And then he says, Madin wahal, past and present, being another formal meaning of the word hal, morrin wahal, that which is bitter and that which is sweet. So the affairs of the believer are always going to be good because they don't look to the event or the incident itself, but they look to the incident as being a gift from Allah, from God. Subhanallah. And that's the difference. Subhanallah. Absolutely beautiful reminder. And also for Sheikh Wissam, the, the beauty of the kalima, inna lillah wa inna ilayhi raji'oon. One of the, the statements Allah tells us to say during calamities, and, and this is perhaps one of the biggest calamities we've witnessed in our lifetime, to say, inna lillah wa inna ilayhi raji'oon. A mental note that we belong to Allah, and also a mental note that we will return to Him. Coming back to the, the placard of the woman that says, you cannot defeat a nation that knows that death is not the end, i.e. a nation that knows to Allah we return. It's not the end of the story. And one other point on that, and that's a fantastic mm. point, and we are reminded of that very, in fact, that becomes an obligation almost to say to God we belong and to God we shall return. That's the expected phrase that one ought to utter. And it's a great reminder of, yes, the individual, you you came from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and you're going back to him. Mm. When you hear that, uh, that does something. So it's faith, we say alhamdulillah for for what he's given us and we mm. always say alhamdulillah for, for all situations. Yes. And um, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make the affairs easy, wallah. Ameen. May Allah make the affairs easy. I mean, another glimmer of hope that we are seeing because it is easy to get fixated on, on, on the gruesome bloodshed that we're witnessing, but we are seeing glimmers of hope. And one of those glimmers of hope I'm witnessing is just the, the, the zeal amongst the Muslims the passion amongst the Muslims, the enthusiasm amongst the Muslims in all their various different unique capacities to do something for the Palestinian people. We saw in uh, Canterbury Bankstown Council, they, they rose the Palestinian flag. We saw lawyers that came together to sue the prime minister for, for his failure to condemn uh, international war crimes. We saw children that have come together to, to protest at, at parks for the children of, of Gaza. And we are seeing a motivation amongst the Muslims to do something. And this is a beautiful sense to see amongst the Muslims in their unique capacities. If I could ask you, Mashaykh, what should the Muslim be doing right now? We've, I've listed a few examples, but how should the Muslim know what he should be doing in this current time? The first thing is to resort to Allah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, The one who places their full and complete trust and reliance in Allah, Allah is going to be sufficient. That's yes. the first thing. And the person who has true awareness, conscious mindfulness of Allah in belief, fulfilling his commands, leaving his prohibitions. Yes. Allah will grant him or her a way out. Allah will then grant them sufficient provision from a place where they least expected it. And so the way out for this ummah 
is none other than to turn back to Allah. Mm. To turn back to Allah in true humility. One of the great scholars of our past, Ahmad Rifai, says, I looked at all the gates and doors that lead us to Allah, and I found that they were all crowded and full. But I found one where there was few people. He says, Babul iftiqari ilallah. He says, the, tor- the door of utter dependence and weakfulness and humility before Allah. Brothers and sisters, this is the time for us to spend a moment, a minute, 10 minutes, one hour in the middle of our night where no one else is watching us in our tahajjud, in our night prayer, in our dua. We can do things amazing when we're together. When we come together in our qunut and in our prayers and in our collective dua and in our protests and in our rallies and in our social media campaigns, which are all amazing collective efforts. But when we return back in the next life, we come back to Allah alone. We need to know how it is for us to be one with Allah. And when we do that, we're reminded of our beloved Prophet ﷺ on the 17th night of the month of Ramadan, in the second year after Hijrah, the night of the Battle of Badr. Sayyidina Abu Bakr al-Siddiq, there's only 313 or 15 or so companions against a thousand strong army full of their weapons and animals and, and their ammunition. And the companions didn't come to fight, but rather they came in order to intercept a caravan that was coming back down from Syria to Mecca with much of the merchandise that was in fact from the property of the Muslims who they had actually been uh, forced to flee from Mecca. But how did the Prophet ﷺ spend that night of Badr? Abu Bakr says, I heard him saying, Ya Hayyu, Ya Qayyum. Raising his hands, not just like this. He says he raised his hands until his upper garment fell from his shoulders and I could see the whiteness of his armpits. He was raising his hands up to the heavens, beseeching Allah, O ever-living, O everlasting, in order for us to realize that in fact for us, as you mentioned before, there is no death. There is no end of life. But we are just in one stage of a continuous life as souls currently in a body. When we return to Allah, then this is going to be our secret. And any other action that we do in the public sphere is going to be infused with that doing things for the sake of Allah. Indeed, actions are in accordance with the intention and every person will have in accordance with that which they intended. SubhanAllah, you reminded me of a story of the great Salah al-Din al-Ayubi, the conqueror of Jerusalem. I believe if you can authenticate this story, it will be awesome. But obviously he was engaged in jihad, he was engaged in fighting for the conquest of Jerusalem. And perhaps it was one of the most beautiful conquests given that it was one of forgiveness and mercy. Uh, with the fighting, of course, there, we cannot shy away from that. However, as he's walking one night, he walks past one tent and the alive in tahajjud in the middle of the night and he says from this tent the victory will emerge subhanallah sheikh did you have something to i add? did i wanted to add to that and the prophet وسلم, when he made hijrah with abi bakr anhu from mecca to medina mm. you notice how allah azza wa jal did not attach an army to the Prophet. So the army went ahead. If there, if an army was needed, all the mm-hmm. companions went ahead. And so very few people stayed behind. It was Ali radiallahu anhu who stayed behind to re- return the possessions of those who entrusted the Prophet with their goods. Mm-hmm. And when the time came, the Prophet وسلم, he knocked on the door of Abu Bakr and they, they prepared and then they left. But what is interesting is that you notice how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he brought this success and he brought this victory and he brought 
the safe travel of the Prophet without an army, without companions. And it's almost like Allah Azza wa Jal teaches, and this is an example for us, yes. that it's that fundamental connection with him that moves all those pieces of the puzzle together. Yes, That door is so difficult to remove. But yes. your connection to me is the ultimate underpinning yes. and is the ultimate powerhouse. That's yes. what you need to no affect doubt. something. And it was this, this particular moment that you don't need the companions in that sense to protect you. You don't need an army to protect you. You don't need anybody to protect you. I am the one who grants that. Mm-hmm. And that was a clear demonstration that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself protected the Prophet upon this entire route. Mm-hmm. In fact, when they were on the way and they stayed in the cave of Thawr and Abi Bakr radiallahu anhu, he was afraid for the Prophet Muhammad The Prophet was so reassured and the Prophet was mutma'in, his heart was content and even Suraka who followed them, the Prophet was reciting verses, the Prophet was saying to Abi Bakr, La tahzan, mm-hmm. don't be worried. Okay. 100%. Allah is with us. The no. connection here to Allah, and as Sheikh Ahmed said, this is what it's all about. Yes. So all of these voices, all of the the av- avenues that we we pursue to try and bring about mm. some change. But what is very significant is that moment that you have at night. Yes. And you're by yourself. You ask Allah Azza wa Jal that connection, that attitude, that dedication to Allah. Mm-hmm. That ubudiyah, that now I've committed to you, Allah. That this is relationship. That is at the you core. Come back to that. Yes. And you know what's also, it's very important to mention in this as well. False associations. Sometimes we falsely assume that it happens this way, or it happens that way, or it happens that way. But ultimately, we've got to remove ourselves from these false associations. And the false associations could be that it only happens if I do it this way. No, it's about connecting or reconnecting with Allah Azza wa Jal. Often, and I look going on from false associations, I don't know if we'll get there. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people have this a false false association to say, if I speak up, I'll lose my job. Yes. If we'll, I speak we'll up. We'll get there. We'll, we'll get to that. That's a very important topic I do want to touch on. Yes. But just before we move forward, 100% without a shadow of a doubt, Allah is the core of the of the plight of the Muslims. Allah should be front and center of our of our action, of our uh, prayers, of our strategy, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is at the core and there is no victory without Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's assistance, aid and through Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala without a shadow of a doubt. However, I do want to bring up the topic of protests and boycotts. There has been some controversy floating around online, not necessarily from scholars, but perhaps from influencers, from people speaking about the efficacy of protests and boycotts. So they might say that this is not from the Sunnah, this is not from Islam, protests have nothing to do with our religion, you should be praying, you should be following a strategy X, Y, Z that's only firmly established in the Sunnah, ignore protests, ignore boycotts. I would open the floor, what are your thoughts on this from a fiqhi perspective? If you look at the hadith of the Prophet وسلم, he says, any one of you who witnesses man ra'a minkum munkaran, any one of you who witnesses an evil, fal let him or her change it biyadihi. So it's not simply about calling out the wrong, but it's about thinking about how can my actions and steps that I take in life lead to a potential change in that wrong because we don't want the wrong to become two wrongs we want the wrong to be reduced mm-hmm. if he or she is not able to do so mm-hmm. then by his tongue 
فإن لم يستطع فبقلبه and if not in the tongue then at least to have that belief in the heart and then he says وذلك أضعف الإيمان and that is the weakest of faith and another way it's أضعاف الإيمان it is the multiplications of Iman meaning that's where it actually all begins from from that heart so if you look to the various these are all means these are all means to change different people in different capacities will have differing means to change for those that have the ability to change rules laws influence governments and international positions then this is perhaps by use of the hand for those that have got the ability to utilize their knowledge their speech their platform when we say bilisani here that we translate lisan today in the year 2023 in the 21st century what's the tongue of the world, the tongue of the world, social media, yes. without doubt. Does it mean that I have to publicly speak in front of people? Definitely not. But what is it that I can do online to be able to change this evil, meaning this propaganda that is falsely being portrayed, and there are billions of dollars creating false narratives. Mm-hmm. Is not the truth of the story of the injustice of the Palestinians enough of a a narrative in order to rebut the injustice? No. But the other side needs to pour those billions of dollars. Why? Because it's pushing a false narrative. And then a person who's not able to do that, then at least believe in your heart that what you're seeing is an evil, is an act of injustice that must be changed. So any means that we take, we need to ensure that there is no swearing or insulting of the other people. Mm -hmm. Just like anything that the Prophet ﷺ didn't necessarily do. If we look to the scholars of Usul, a Turk for the Prophet ﷺ to re- abstain or refrain or not having been narrated in doing something, a Turk laysa bi He's not doing a particular action, is not a proof or evidence for its hurma for its prohibition. Therefore, it yes. then comes to the ijtihad and the independent legal reasoning of the righteous scholars of the ummah. And each land is going to be different. They're going to need to come together and look, where is the maslaha? Where is the benefit in this particular action? If it said, hmm, perhaps there is going to be now harm upon the Muslims, or there's going to be harm upon the individual if they were to go out and speak out in this particular way, we'd say, no, now let us prevent that harm and let us look at another means. So differing lands, differing places will have differing rulings and different uh, means in order so to enact the, that change. the ruling on protests and boycott would be, if I was to ask for the ruling on protests and boycotts, what would that be in Sydney, Australia, for instance? As long as protests are legal within that particular locality and the necessary permits have been undertaken and there is no evil that is committed within that protest. We don't want people going out. Exactly. We don't want people going out, for instance, and insulting other peoples. Right or uh, hurling uh, various labels upon others that is to also bring harm upon them. So yes. we need to ensure that there is that safety and that cohesiveness of society for people to air their opinions in order to uh, affect public opinion and its change. And that's what it is. It's about changing public opinion and uh, foreign policy okay. positions. Would you encourage people to attend protests? 
I cannot give a blanket statement because differing people will have differing roles to play. Some people will be great at protests and yes. other people, we need to put them somewhere else. They'll, they will be able to utilize their time, for instance, in, a, in the corner of a masjid or giving a lecture or perhaps doing a social media campaign. Yes. So it's not something that is going to be for everyone. Okay. And, and boycott specifically? I, I just want to mention on that point, and, and that's exactly right. There are mm. also different forms of protest. So yes. it's not just one protest, you attend a rally or a march. Mm -hmm. Protest can take many forms. It could simply be holding up a sign and that's my form of protest. Yes. Some people even have silent protests where they, mm -hmm. they remain silent. and So it can take many forms. As for the boycotting, absolutely. And in fact, in terms of the boycotting, I think it's something that is very important that we continue to push and advocate for. Because if you look at the... Prophet Muhammad Muhammad was mentioned in the caravans and what was happening in terms of the caravans, the Prophet وسلم, that he, he when he migrated from Mecca to Medina and the people uh, the people of Mecca and the chieftains there, they took, dispossessed them of all their wealth, they dispossessed them of everything. But they also talk about that the caravans were taken was also a form of boycotting, a, fo a form of economical tactics, right? And so it certainly has its legitimacy in terms of when you use economics or ec economics as a strategy. Mm -hmm. So people who've boycotted now certain companies or organizations or institutions who actively support uh, the harm and injustices that have been perpetrated against mm -hmm. the Palestinian people, absolutely. Then I encourage people to boycott them. And I, and I say, in fact, you're applying one of the things that was applied in the time of the Prophet Muhammad Sayyid al-Buti uh, in his book mentions this very, very clearly where he talks about economic blockade and that economic blockade is actually one of the stratagems that can be used in the time as such. So I would definitely encourage people to desist, assist in those organizations who are actively involved in supporting regimes that are accused of war crimes. Yes. So absolutely, that's clear-cut. War crimes, genocide, War crimes, apartheid. Genocide, apartheid. And these aren't just labels yes. that I'm saying. And, and, and they're not conspiracies. They've yes. come out of uh, the international uh, uh, international yes. uh, criminal uh, or, or court. They've come out of Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch. Yes, very important. So we've got the legitimacy of protest, the, legit the legitimacy sorry, of boycott. Sheikh Ahmed, you mentioned something actually very important to this discussion, which is the fact that the Israeli lobby, the Zionist lobby, is investing billions of dollars into their own narrative. They in fact have influences under their Hasbara campaign. So there is a Hasbara uh, structure, an entity, whereby they pay influencers, celebrities, people that have a following to spread Israeli propaganda. This has all been disclosed on Instagram, on, on social media, whereby influencers themselves have disclosed text emails of them being offered $5,000 and more to support the Israeli narrative. So we are more in need of supporting the Palestinian narrative in light of knowing what is taking place. In light of all this discussion about raising awareness, uh, celebrities promoting uh, Israeli propaganda and Muslims going on to protests and going online to vent their frustrations and to vent their support of the Palestinian struggle. I wanted to bring up a topic whereby some people are being criticized and condemned online for their lack of raising their voice. Perhaps these people are Muslim, 
Perhaps these people are politicians, perhaps these people are famous, but they are being condemned online. We ourselves at One Path have made some videos condemning a few people for not raising their voices. What are your thoughts on condemning people that are silent? Are people that are silent excused in certain instances or are people that are silent guilty? How do we draw the line? Yeah, the first thing I think that we need to reflect upon is the hadith of the Prophet وسلم, <clears throat> that talks about the greatest struggle. Mm. He says, He says, the greatest form of striving and effort, jihad, is to speak the word of justice, the word of truth in the face of a tyrant, a tyrannical ruler. Yes. The scholars spoke about the legal ruling with regard to speaking truth in the face of injustice. This is not a fardain. It is not an individual obligation upon every single member of the ummah to speak these words of truth. In fact, they went on to say that if a person uh, realizes that there is going to be overwhelming uh, doubt, uh, overwhelming likelihood or certainty that there is going to be harm to them, then they are excused from speaking out in terms of the words of truth. So everyone needs to look to what is their situation. However, for us to make a blanket conclusion, because someone has not publicly spoken about this issue, then their position is one, two, three. We begin to assume their position. The Prophet ﷺ also says to us to give your Muslim brother up to 70 excuses if there is a disagreement between you mm -hmm. or if you've seen something that has occurred, give them the benefit of the doubt. So the first thing that I would recommend is to have an individual conversation with that particular person okay. to find out. Perhaps they have said it in other uh, platforms mm -hmm. or perhaps there is something that is preventing them from saying it. Perhaps that is what they truly believe, yeah. but they have not articulated it on their tongue for one or two reasons. And let's see, okay, what are the uh, the, 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 the blockages? What, are the, what is it that's preventing this person? How can we help them to begin to take a stronger stance rather than trying to shut them down immediately? Because okay. We're about empowering, and um, this ummah is about empowering one another. We don't want to bring people down. Okay, perhaps we can make some excuses for DJ Khaled, the, the most influential Palestinian artist in America who is yet to say anything for the Palestinians, unfortunately. But we'll make excuses. I do have two questions to push back on your answer, Sheikh, and forgive me for doing this, but this is what the people in the comments will probably be thinking as well. To what degree of harm are we talking about? You mentioned that if there is a potential degree of harm that might come to me, I am excused. So what degree of harm are we talking about? Is it like a simple, you, maybe I might lose a sponsorship of $500. What degree of harm are we talking about? And secondly, you mentioned that it's fald kifaya. So a communal obligation to raise your voice for this plight. Are there instances where it is a fald ain? For instance, someone who is in a position of power someone who is in a position of uh, a high influence within the community, someone who has been elected perhaps to represent the community, yet they have remained silent. So two questions, what degree of harm are we talking about? And secondly, is it ever fard ain on a person? So compulsory upon himself to speak up. Yeah, look, I, I think it's a very difficult question because we don't want to come and assume certain things about people that mm -hmm. haven't publicly spoken up. Yes. Now, we probably have seen they've said things, but not to the extent that we would like them to go yes. out publicly. And clearly there are going to be reasons 
behind that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I come back to what I said before, the importance of having those individual private conversations in order to ascertain what is the environment that that particular person is in. It comes back to also, what is my priority in life? Is my job more important? Is my position more important? Is my perceived influence within this platform or within this uh, industry or whatever else it might be, um, is my perceived influence more important than me going out and speaking in solidarity with calling for justice? justice for the Palestinian people, Mm -hmm. calling for a clear, unconditional ceasefire to stop the ethnic cleansing, to stop the genocide, to stop the indiscriminate bombings. What is more important to me? And that's what every... And and, and our address first is going to be twofold. One is to those who have accepted this kalima of La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah because there is a greater responsibility upon them. O you who hold the light and the nur, of belief in Allah and belief in his prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam your prophet underwent great persecution because of one reason he called to the worship of Allah and he stood for justice and he stood beside those who were being oppressed and dealt with unjustly within Mecca and he underwent all of that persecution and his loved ones and his companions and those around him lost their lives and were killed during that process so the question for members of our ummah who still haven't yet had the courage to be able to speak up is to reassess what is your priority and to have a uh, a perception that begins to mature such that I'm not the one who determines this position that I am holding is more important to me because if this position that I'm holding I am claiming that because this is going to progress and move forward the plight of my ummah, mm-hmm. of my community, of my people. The question is then asked, if when your people need you most, you are unable to speak up, what is my role in that particular area or in uh, in that position? Thank you, thank you. Can I, can I yes. add to that? And it's, it's important that we have this discussion. Fard kifaya, the same token, if no one exercises that act then the sin falls upon the entire community so somebody's got to act yes if you see a wrong the first point is you stop it with your hands if you can't then you say something use your voice and whatever capacity that may take and if you can't then at the very least that should affect you in the heart yes feeling bad in the heart is the least form but it's still an act of faith i think that sometimes that's lost on us but it's still an act of faith. And the Prophet said, Amen. That's what they like, but it's still an act of faith, but the least form of faith. Ultimately, in the end, though, there has to be a voice and there has to be action. And we have to call for that. People will voice that and, and do in their own capacity what they're able to do. And so often you find that people don't have mediums of social media. I think what a problem, big problem is today is if it's not on your social media, you haven't come out. And that's not necessarily true. Mm-hmm. Just because it's not advocated on social media doesn't mean I haven't come out. doesn't mm-hmm. mean I haven't said anything. So we have to be careful of this dynamic. And we have to especially be careful of cancel culture when you don't know the reality of something, okay. when something's not clear to me. But in this situation, I think there is – we're living 
in a in a in a moment in time where the situation is very desperate. Our Muslim brothers and sisters are being slaughtered. And do you have capacity? Do you have ability? Then do something. Say something. And I, I think this is this is a, a not a convenient thing. This is a necessary thing that we have to embark upon at this moment, at this hour. False associations, I think, are problematic. I think people have a lot of false associations. And it's the other other side of the coin, right? If I say something, I'm going to lose my job. If I say something, my reputation is going to be lost. Now, often I say to people, if you're in a position where you can influence something, but then you don't and you stay quiet, then you have to reassess. As Sheikh Ahmed said, you have to reassess. Yes. Maybe there is a false assumption. Because ultimately, our rizq and our provision is not in the hands of creation, but in reality, it's in the hands of Allah Azza wa Jal. Yes. And he'll move the jigsaw however, however mm. he deems fit to provide that provision. Yes. And we respect the cause and effect of this world, but also our reputation. Mm. If I speak the truth and people as, uh, assume uh, to, t- to go take me on a path of character assassination, but in reality, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to honor me, no one can dishonor me. Nobody. My reputation is in, is in his hands. Mm. My honor is in his hands. If he debases me, no one can honor me. Yes. And if he honors me, nobody can dis, uh, debase me. Yes. That's the truth and that's the reality. If someone has put you in a position to speak, then you ought to speak. Yes. And may Allah reward all those and who have Allah, spoken. Of course. Yes. But I, I would just also provide that word of caution to say, don't think just because somebody hasn't spoken in the way that you've expected them to speak, that they haven't spoken. Don't assume that yes. because they probably have. So there is that benefit of the doubt as well. And I say that not from somebody who hasn't spoken. And Sheikh Ahmed doesn't say it from somebody who hasn't spoken. Yes, you, He's you, been very the vocal. The two of you have been very vocal. Sheikh Ahmed's come... been very vocal. I've been very vocal. So I'm not coming from a point where I haven't been vocal. I'm just coming from a point to just say, look, I'm, I'm, there should be a point of caution here to say, don't assume because somebody hasn't come out the way that you expect them to come out, that they haven't actually spoken about the issue or voiced very firmly yes. on this issue. And so that there's a point of caution there. Yes, and, and I appreciate the nuance of that. So we do not jump to conclusions. So Jazakallah khairan for that. Um, I, I would like to give a, a word of thanks to all those that have spoken out, those that have used their platforms to speak out. And I speak from a state of privilege, knowing full well that uh, I live in Australia, knowing that I work with One Path Network. I will not be fired for raising the plight of the Palestinian people like other people are getting fired and losing their jobs for raising awareness about the Palestinian issue. But it does take that sense of trust in Allah, tawakkul, that Allah is with me um, and Allah is the provider and Allah is the razzaq. Before we close up, I wanted to ask a question and this is an eschatological question, a question pertaining to the end of times. Sheikh Ahmed, you earlier mentioned that there is a people in Palestine that will remain undefeated despite the blame of the blamers, the criticizers, the, the criticizers those who uh, criticize them, rebuke them, they will remain. What is the eschatological significance of Gaza? 
If we, if we look at not only Gaza, but the land of Palestine, we know that the last conflict and war will in fact happen in Palestine. The Prophet ﷺ, when he talks to us about the coming down of Isa bin Maryam again in the land of Damascus and the coming back or the, uh, the, the rising of the false Christ, the Antichrist, the Dajjal, and that there will be no power on earth that will be able to uh, uh, defeat the uh, Dajjal other than Sayyidina Isa, the son of Maryam, Jesus, the son of Mary, that final battle will occur in the land of Philistine. And in fact, the hadith of the Prophet Wasallam mentions awesome. that it will be at the gates of Lud, a city within Philistine. Um, and the Dajjal, when he comes, he will be prevented from three sacred areas, Masjid al-Haram and Masjid al-Nabawi, and also in one narration, Masjid al-Aqsa. So they will be protected, they will be haram, they will be sanctuaries. So there will be great events that will be occurring at the end of the time, and if the Prophet and the Prophet وسلم, also mentioned in a hadith, although not referring to Sham, but he says, if the trials and tribulations become apparent for alaykum bil Yemen, then you are to go and flock to the land of Yemen. And again, if we come back to as we commenced, two great conflict zones, both the area of Yemen and the area of Sham. And that's why many of the pious scholars of today say that that uh, instability that we see in these two areas towards the end of time, these will become the most stable, the most tranquil, and the most serene of places for the believers in Allah. Allah protect the believers, Allah protect the people of Palestine. If we can end on a closing dua for the people of Palestine, that would be much appreciated. Just before we end on a dua, yeah. and Sheikh will probably give the sheikh to end on that diet. But I, I just wanted to say a, a word as well about the, this entire issue. And I know you've already canvassed that sort of at the beginning, but there's something that also I really felt in my heart I wanted to say. And that's, that's the dehumanization of the Palestinian people and the narrative. They've been called animals. They've been called Let's wipe them out. People say, wipe them out of the face of this earth. In here in Australia, we've had politicians in Australia that have said, don't worry about civilian casualties in your response. They turned off the water. They've turned off the electricity. They've kept fuel out. They've bombed hospitals. But it's the narrative of dehumanizing these people and setting up these constructs that makes them an easy target. And when you look at it from that facet, we see all Western governments, a lot of politicians, Western governments, they parrot this, this narrative and this dehumanization. And they throw in the word of ISIS because ISIS is like a trigger word, right? The world went through it. Terrorist, and the words terrorism become synonymous with Islam. If you say Muslims, surveys show that you think you think terrorism. If you say terrorism, you think Islam. So if you say ISIS, you think Muslim. If you say Muslim, you might think ISIS. You might think forced brides and you might think oppression of women, blah, blah, blah. There are trigger words that people use. And the whole issue has been dressed up in a narrative and it's a dehumanizing narrative. And for you to come out and call people human animals, what you're in fact saying is you're embarking upon this process of genocide. And the West, the Western politicians, Western governments are parroting these very words. They're trigger words. They're weaponizing words. And we also saw it here and we've seen it abroad 
where governments start talking about citizenship, immigration, and it becomes categorization. You begin to categorize Muslims as an outgroup. Now, when you categorize Muslims as an outgroup, what you're effectively doing is saying, I can attach all the negative attributes and traits to this outgroup. We're the in-group, they're the outgroup. In simpler terms, they're them and us. So this whole narrative and the whole dehumanizing pro dehumanization process is being parroted by what I've seen in all these Western governments. Mm -hmm. Most Western governments. Some people have stood up. We've seen people come out in Ireland and, and other areas around the world. And, and that's been fantastic. But ultimately, it's been a situation where it's, it's presented itself so clearly because the ultimate end goal seems to be genocide. And that is, that's what's unfolding at the moment. So we need to be aware of this. What I also want to say is right now, right now, we need to have a ceasefire. Out of this sitting here, we call on governments to come to the table, to stand up and say an immediate ceasefire. Don't say a pause in the war. You're speaking political, maneuvering, you're playing on words. And it's further blanket endorsement of the Israeli regime. Don't say we want a ceasement in, to allow a corridor of, of aid to come through. Don't say that. Say we want a ceasefire, a permanent ceasefire. And I would take it one step further to say not only a permanent ceasefire, but now you need to be held to account. The ICC says you better have every justification for every building that you hit, for every target that you took out, for every car that you dropped the bomb on. You better have a justification for that. Yes. And we hope that they're brought to account. So not only are we calling Western governments, Australian prime ministers, Australian politicians, American presidents, and so on and so forth, to come out with an immediate ceasefire. Don't speak political jargon. People know what you're doing. But come for a ceasefire and then hold those accountable that need to be held accountable. And that's the reality. Yes. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to farraj hammahun, to yasir amrahun. We ask Allah to make it easy upon them. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to remove the oppressors from this world sooner rather than later. Sooner rather than later. And we trust Allah's wisdom. And we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, really when I think of a dua, I think of the children that are going to go through trauma. And that's going to be intergenerational trauma. These kids are suffering trauma. They're seeing bombs. They're saying that we're, we're waiting for our lives to end. These are children. These are babies. Mm -hmm. These are babies. Don't you have any compassion? Where is your compassion? Where is selective, selective empathy, selective outrage, selective morality? It's been all selective. And the problem is that we have this cycle now because it's been selective. You really want to end these battles? You really want to end this genocide? Then don't be selective in your compassion. Don't be selective in your grief. Don't be selective in your morality. Yes. Stand for justice. Stand for the principles. And that's the problem that we're seeing in today's world. It's been completely and utterly selective. And mm -hmm. nobody is acknowledging the grief and the injustice that's facing our Muslim brothers and sisters. Yes. The dehumanization mm -hmm. process, we see it ongoing, ongoing all the time to make it easier for you to drop a bomb on these people. We ask Allah to make it easier. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make it easier. Shaykh Ahmed. Shaykh Ahmed.
الحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل وسلم على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه أجمعين اللهم فرج عنا وعن إخواننا المسلمين المستضعفين المظلومين في شرق الأرض وفي غربها اللهم إنا نسألك أن تعينهم يا رب العالمين اللهم أعن إخواننا في غزة وفي فلسطين وفي الضفة الغربية يا رب العالمين اللهم تقبل من شهداءهم اللهم ارحم أطفالهم ونساءهم وكبارهم ورجالهم اللهم أحقن دماءهم اللهم احفظ بيوتهم وبلادهم يا رب العالمين اللهم رد الظالمين يا رب العالمين عن ظلمهم اللهم إنا نسألك أن تطفئ نيران الفتن ما ظهر منها وما بطن Oh Allah we ask you together all of our hearts upon the belief of la ilaha illallah muhammadun rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam oh allah we ask you to extinguish the flames of trial tribulation and senseless war massacre genocide and indiscriminate killing oh allah we ask you to remove the oppression from all of the lands in the east and the west and in particular in the land of palestine oh allah we ask you to stop the aggressor the oppressor the tyrant in their oppression in their tyranny and in their aggression oh allah we ask you to come to the protection of those who are dealt with unjustly with those who are occupied those weak oh allah oh allah we ask you to accept from those who have dedicated their lives and their souls for your sake oh Allah we ask you for your mercy your compassion your kindness and your gentleness with the innocent babies and children and infants that have lost their lives in this endless war oh Allah we ask you for the protection of our young and our old in Palestine oh Allah protect their homes protect their land protect their lives oh Allah oh Allah allow them to be in a place which is no longer occupied in a place in which there is safety and security peace and prosperity oh allah allow those who have uh, hidden agendas and motives in that which they do to be removed from those particular positions and places of influence and power and power and we ask you oh allah to allow those people of wisdom of intelligence of true peace and harmony and cohesiveness in society to be brought to the front oh allah in order to restore the injustice to justice to restore the unfairness to fairness to restore the war to peace to restore the bloodshed to integrity and to honor and to respect we ask you with this prayer we ask you with this supplication oh allah and we ask you tonight the people of la ilaha illallah on the one rope on the one path and we ask you to allow us to continuously live in the state of islam and submission and surrender to you and for our last words in this dunya in this world to be la ilaha illallah muhammadun rasulullah alayha nahya wa alayha namut wa alayha nub'athu minal aminin walhamdulillahi rabbil alameen amin Thank you very much, Mashaykh. Thank you very much, Sheikh Wissam and Sheikh Ahmed Abdu, for this very important talk. A very uh, an emergency podcast, I would have to say, for the for the sake of the Palestinians and what they are going through. It's a plight that we are all grieving, mourning, and our hearts are aching for. I ask Allah Subhanahu wa Taala to make it easy for them to grant them freedom at last and to finally free Palestine. Jazakallah khairan and thank you very much. Until next time, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.